Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, we're going to be having a chat about some of the weirdest epithets from throughout history. And I started thinking about this topic over the past few weeks while we were doing episodes about the Vikings, right? All the all the ridiculous epithets we came across in the last couple of episodes. Some of them, some of them were pretty sick, to be honest. There were some really good ones. Eric Bloodaxe, Richard the Fearless. But then there were some others that you, you just really wouldn't want to be lumped with, like you know, Gorm the Old, Ethelred the Unready, even Harold Bluetooth. Poor old Harold. Everyone's going on about his rotten tooth. He goes, oh, yeah, mate, all right, I get it. I'm sorry. They haven't invented bloody Colgate yet. What do you want from me? Nine out of ten dentists agree that dentists don't even exist yet. Anyway, it got me thinking, right? So I decided to have a look into some of the most ridiculous epithets from throughout history, some of the silliest ones, right? And let me tell you, there are some out there that raise some real questions. Obviously, there are the classics, right? We've all heard of Alexander the Great, William the Conqueror. But I'm not here to talk about that kind of epithet. No, I'm here to talk about a different kind. I'm here to talk about ones like John the Babymaker or Half Dan the Bad Entertainer, son of Einstein the Fart. These are real historical figures, and those are their real epithets. John the baby maker, you won't, be, you won't be surprised to learn, he fathered 63 illegitimate children before he got married. Um, Half Dan the Bad Entertainer was apparently very generous with his money, but very stingy with his food. So, you know, he'd invite people around, oh, you need some cash? No worries, mate. Here you go. Oh, no, no, don't worry about it. You, you, you don't have to pay me back. But, oh, oh, what? Oh, you wanted to have dinner? You didn't? You didn't eat before you came over? Oh, okay. And his dad, right? His dad, Einstein, his epithet was the fart. And to this day, we don't know why. Although, I mean, you can hazard, you can hazard a guess or two as to why this bloke ended up being called that. Um, we, do know how he, we do know, interestingly, how he died, even if we don't know why he's called the fart. Apparently, unfortunately, there's nothing, the, the two had nothing to do with each other. But uh, he died after being, after being knocked off a ship. When the boom swung around and knocked him into the water, which drowned him. But anyway, look, we're not. That's not what we're here to talk about. This isn't history's weirdest deaths. It's history's weirdest epithets. And today, we're going to talk about five of the strangest appellations given to historical figures, and we're going to explain why they got them. Now, this five doesn't include John the Baby Maker or Half Day and the Bad, en- Bad Entertainer or even Einstein the Fart. No, those those are thrown in as a bonus for you at, at no extra cost to you, the listener. Uh, We've got five others from across the span of history, from ancient to medieval, all the way through to modern times. Five of the best for you to enjoy here. So let's get underway. Let's get underway and meet the people with five of the weirdest epithets in history. Off we go. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to 135 BCE for our first epithet. Back to the ancient kingdom of Pontus, found in modern-day Turkey around the Black Sea. In the year 135, young Mithridates Eupator Dionysus was born, the the son of King Mithridates V Euergetes. Should have looked up how to pronounce that. Euergetes? Euergetes? I don't know. And it doesn't matter because no one called him that. Everyone called him Mithridates the Benefactor, um, maybe because they couldn't figure out how to pronounce 
Euergetes or whatever it is. Anyway, Mithridates is a benefactor. Boring. We can do better than that. Um, says his son, actually, and uh, he certainly does. Let me tell you, because his son, right, Mithridates, Mithridates Eupator Dionysus, ends up with a much better, much cooler epithet, as we'll come to. Anyway, Mithridates, both both of them, um, claimed the ancestry of Darius the Great and Cyrus the Great, as well as uh, claiming to be descendants of the generals of Alexander the Great. But the younger Mithridates didn't end up as Mithridates the Great. No, no, no. He became known to history as, are you ready for this one? Mithridates the Poison King, which is certainly a lot, a lot more unique than the Great. You've got to give him that, right? Anyway, his journey to be to becoming the Poison King uh, began after the death of his father, Mithridates the Benefactor, uh, who died after being, can you guess, poisoned by an unknown assassin. Now, this scared the living daylights out of young Mithridates, whose mum became regent while he went into hiding, living out in the wilderness. He was so scared of losing his own life himself. And uh, while he was away living off the uh, mm, uh, off what the ancient world had for a grid, um, he began to, check this out, right? He began to inoculate himself against various poisons by exposing himself to tiny amounts of them so as to build up immunity. And eventually, he emerged from the wilderness, apparently huge big axe of a bloke, all muscles, handsome devil he was. He chucked his mum and brother in prison to rule Pontus by himself. He married his sister to solidify his claim on the throne. That's certainly one way to do it. And he got on with governing his realm, fighting the neighbouring Bithynians, fighting the Romans, fighting whoever needed fighting, to be honest. But he didn't stop essentially just microdosing poison, uh, all sorts of different poisons, but especially arsenic. That was what had killed his old man. And so continued to build up resistance and hopefully immunity to all of these different substances that otherwise might have killed him. He was that scared of assassination that he never stopped trying to find ways to become immune to poisons of all sorts. But it went even further than that. Apparently, the bloke used to sleep with animals near his bed. Bet you wondered where I was going with that one. Um, prey animals, right? Like, uh, like horses and stags who would be more alert to intruders and wake him with their bleating if someone approached. But the main thing, right, that he was afraid of being assassinated with uh, was poison. He was famous for it. Um, arsenic, hellebore, hemlock, snake venom. He did all sorts of research on all sorts of different ancient poisons. Um, and one of his lifelong quests was, as I say, total immunity from poisons of all kinds. Now, look, obviously, you know, you, you gotta, you got to break a few eggs if you want to make an omelette. And did Mithridates test some of his more unrefined serums and antidotes on condemned prisoners to see if they would work killing him in the process? Look, honestly, who can say? Well, yes, I can. I can say that, yes, he did do this. He did a lot of research on poisons by just poisoning people who had been condemned to death. Bad luck for them, I suppose. Anyway, he built up a huge amount of knowledge on poisons and on ancient medicine in general. And eventually, much later in life, all of Mithridates' hard work seemed to pay off. And I'll tell you why, because there are two things going on here. Number one, he claimed, right, he claimed, it's never been proven, but he claimed to have discovered the formula for a universal antidote to all poisons. Now, Sadly, we don't have that formula these days. More's the pity. It'd be bloody useful, wouldn't it? But no, lost to the mists of time. Bloody bugger of a thing, isn't it? But no, look, it's doubtful, honestly, that he ever did discover a universal antidote, given that he was limited to the uh, 
the medicinal knowledge of the first century BCE. But hey, look, who knows? Maybe it happened. Uh, but I'll tell you this, this definitely did happen. The second thing, right? He definitely did build up an immunity to poison. That part is beyond doubt. Uh, <laughs> and get ready for this part of the story because it is, uh, oh boy, it's a wild ride. In 66 BCE, Mithridates was defeated in battle by Pompey, the famous Roman general who would go on to lose a civil war against Julius Caesar. Episode 205, get across it. Mithridates fled. He attempted to gather a new army to fight the Romans. He failed and so decided to take his own life in 63 BCE. He's had a good, he, look, he's had a good run. He's in his 70s. Time to wrap things up, he says. So how does he try to commit suicide? With poison, of course. Mithridates poisoned himself. He either swallowed a dose of poison or he smeared it on his sword and, and cut himself to get it into his bloodstream. And then... He was just fine. He was fine. The poison didn't even touch him. We don't even know what the poison was, but it doesn't matter because he was essentially immune to all known poisons. Could have been anything at all. He's walking around. He was jogging around, apparently, trying to get the poison circulating in his bloodstream to hasten its effects. But this supposedly lethal dose of poison is doing nothing to him. Didn't even touch the sides. Now, this must have been very bloody gratifying, knowing that his entire life's work to immunise himself against poisons was so effective that even when he wanted to die via poison, he couldn't. Who knows how many people tried to assassinate him and he didn't even feel it. But at this point, when you're actually trying to end, end your own life, bit annoying to have been sort of hoist by your own petard there in, in building up this immunity to the very thing that you're hoping to use to off yourself. So... Because of his desire to avoid being captured by Pompey and paraded around Rome as part of a triumph, um, he, he decided to take rather drastic measures in order to, to, uh, to end his own life. He called over one of his bodyguards and he gave his final order. He says, you there, Batutus, mate, come over here. Do us a favour. Just run me just run me through with that sword of yours, will you? Now, Mithridates may have had an immunity to poison, but he certainly did not have an immunity to swords. And so that was the end of him. But even today, even today, we still refer to the process of deliberately taking small amounts of poison to immunize yourself as Mithridatism. And we still refer to this mythical universal antidote that he supposedly discovered as Mithridate. And we still refer to him, Mithridates the Sixth Eupator, as Mithridates the Poison King. Now, look, I'm losing my hair, and it is a bastard of a thing to go through. Can't do anything about it. Just another whack of the shonky jeans that me mum gave me, along with the colour blindness. So, thanks very much for that, mum. Although I, yeah, I did end up with my devilishly handsome good looks, so I suppose I can't be too upset about the situation. But uh, look, going bald, not much fun at all. So when I came across this next bloke and his name, Charles the Bald, I tell you what, I, I felt very sorry for this poor bugger because it's one thing to go bald, right? It's one thing to suffer the indignity of your body saying, I'll tell you what, mate, I reckon, I reckon I could save you a, a fortune on shampoo, you know. Uh, but imagine being known as the bald for the rest of history. Charles would be spewing, I reckon, but not perhaps for the reason that you're thinking, as you'll discover as we get into his story. Here we go. Charles the bald was born on the 13th of June, 823, in Frankfurt, modern-day Germany. 
Uh, and he was born as a member of the Carolingian dynasty. He was the son of Louis the Pious, who himself was the son of the famous Charlemagne. Very important figure in medieval European history. We'll have to get, a, have to get around to an episode on him one day. Anyway... In 843, three years after the death of his old man Lewis had uh, had plunged Western Europe into chaos and infighting, Charles became the king of West Francia after the Treaty of Verdun carved up territory between Charlemagne's grandsons. Now, Charles did all right in terms of land. He got a whole bloody lot of it to govern, but he had a rough go of governing it as king. He had Viking invasions to deal with. His own barons resisted his rule. All sorts of issues, right? But still, he did a good job consolidating his rule, delegating power effectively to regional governors and administrators. And before long, he's got things under control. He uh, he also took a very direct and effective route in dealing with the Viking raiders and invaders that plagued his lands. He just bribed them. He said, he says to them, listen here, you pricks, I'll save you the trouble of all the looting and the pillaging. Here's some gold. Now just bloody bugger off, will you? Takes all the fun out of it for the Vikings, you'd think. But hey, look, everyone loves a day off, so the Vikings accept these tribute payments and they stop attacking. And once Charles has a firmer grip on power throughout his realm, he focused his attention on other less belligerent pursuits, namely art, literature, culture, learning, that sort of thing, right? Making a very meaningful contribution to a period of history known as the Carolingian Renaissance. All sorts of very talented people, artists, writers, scholars, real culture vultures, right? They all flock to his court, which becomes, as you can imagine, a cultural centre point of 9th century Europe. His reign had a lasting impact on European history in many ways, but one of the most important things he did was in 870 when he and his half-brother Louis the German signed the Treaty of Mirzen, which split the Carolingian lands into West Francia, under him, Charles, and East Francia under Lewis. Now, this is admittedly a bit of an oversimplification, but essentially, West Francia became France, and East Francia became the Holy Roman Empire, from which the modern state of Germany would eventually emerge, more or less, again, an oversimplification, but ultimately a huge contribution to European history from Charles the Bald, but also a huge contribution in the world of historical epithets, and not just with his own. His sons included Charles the Child. What were you expecting? To give birth to an, a fully grown adult? Of course he's a child. Um, Lothar the Lame, poor old Lothar. And Louis the Stammerer, which is also probably not an epithet you want to end up with. Um, but it goes further than just his children because his grandchildren included Charles the Simple and a kid called Baldwin, who, like his grandpa, grew up to be known as Baldwin the Bald. How unfair is that? But you're probably wondering, what was it that made Charles the Bald lose his hair in the first place? Why did he go bald? Was it the stress of governing a kingdom? Was it worrying about Viking invasions and a squabbling nobility, sorting out treaties with your brother? Obviously, very demanding to put yourself through all this stuff in the in the business of being a monarch. Your hair's bound to fall out, right? You're bound to end up with a head as a hairless as a bowling ball. All the stress and anxiety, trying to be a good king who goes down favourably in history. Tell me, exalted listener, that that's the sort of thing that might just make you lose your bloody hair. Of course it must be, right? Well, no, apparently not, because Charles the Bald was not bald, in fact. He was, by all accounts, the complete opposite 
a great big thick luscious head of hair he had on him apparently. The nickname was Ironic. You can go and see depictions of him from when he was around. Full head of hair in every single one. So unless he tricked everyone with a very convincing wig, this bloke was as hairy as anything. And in some ways, this makes me feel even sorrier for him because the poor bastard, right, thanks to his ironic nickname, the one single fact that everyone probably thinks they know about the bloke named Charles the Bald is completely false. Imagine being called King whatever the mass murderer because you never killed someone or being called Old Mate the Extremely Racist when you're one of the most tolerant people on earth. Awful situation for Charles. I mean, what what a terrible, terrible piece of bad luck for this ironic nickname to have stuck throughout the centuries since he, since he was kicking around. It's bad enough being teased for being bald when you are bald, but here we are over a thousand years later having a laugh about a bloke known to history as Charles the Bald who was, as it turns out, not bald at all. Back in the later stages of the 13th century, things really weren't going too well in Bulgaria. The emperor, Constantine Tick, was absolutely useless. He's doing a bloody terrible job of managing his realm. He's getting clobbered by the Byzantines. He's getting thrashed by the Hungarians. He's getting a hiding from the Nogai Horde. And people aren't happy. As you can imagine, Bulgaria is copping it from all angles here. Pillagers and raiders causing chaos. People are dying. It's no bloody good, mate. And so in 1277, someone emerges to rise up against this incompetent Emperor Constantine, someone who will bravely go on to lead a peasant uprising, fight back against the useless Bulgarian imperial administration and go on to claim the throne of Bulgaria for himself. And you might think this bloke would be deserving of a great epithet. You might think he would be known by a name suited to such a courageous and successful leader as someone who rose from the lowest social classes to become an emperor in his own own right. That's what you'd think. And you would think completely wrong because, at best, this bloke is known as Ivalo the Swineherd, and at worst, he's known as Ivalo the Cabbage. The Cabbage, mate. We've had people named after animals, right? There's Henry the Lion, there's Albert the Bear... But never someone named after a bloody vegetable. Poor Ivalo. Ivalo was a common farmer. He may have herded pigs. He may have grown cabbages. We don't know. But by all accounts, he was a poor landless peasant. He was from northeastern Bulgaria, the area that was hardest hit by the Mongols from the Nogai Horde. And so one day he says, look, enough is enough, right? I've had a gut full of these bastards. He organised a local resistance against the depredations of the Nogai Horde. And when this resistance actually ended up being very successful in driving off the Mongols, Ivalo goes, well, hang on, hang on just one second here. How far can we go with this? People bloody loved the bloke, as you might expect. He'd managed to give the Nogai Horde a thrashing, someone that even the bloody emperor couldn't do. And so people flocked to his side, and not just other peasants, but nobles too, who fell in beside him and supported his efforts as a new regional military leader. They could see which way the wind was blowing. He was a very charismatic bloke, very likeable fellow apparently, and uh, didn't have too much trouble finding new allies, particularly given how useless the imperial administration was in Bulgaria at the time. 
he actually began to fancy himself as a contender for the imperial throne. And Constantine Tick had to respond. He gathered his armies and he made ready for battle against this jumped up filthy peasant. But we all know how good Constantine was when it came to winning battles. And so Ivalo wiped the floor with him, mate. And the story goes that he personally slew Constantine himself. So now, with the empire of Bulgaria in disarray, the emperor dead, the Byzantine Emperor Michael VIII attempted to use the chaos to his advantage and tried to install his own puppet emperor in the neighbouring state of Bulgaria. But this didn't work when Constantine's widow Maria decided to marry Ivalo, the bloke who had just killed her husband. Ivalo apparently was quite resistant to the idea of marrying Maria, but uh, he quite quite fancied the, the idea of claiming the imperial throne by conquest. But before long, he realised that this marriage would be a bit of a shortcut to legitimising himself as emperor. And it certainly was, because when he married in uh, he married Maria in 1278, he was immediately proclaimed emperor. And he got on with fighting the Byzantines to the south and the Mongols to the north and did a pretty bloody good job of fighting a two-front war, which is never easy. He fought, he fought his guts out and all the way through to, to 1279, personally leading armies, fighting on the front lines, as a good leader should. Never ask someone to do something you wouldn't be happy to do yourself. But unfortunately, it was this habit of his to fight on the front lines that led to his ultimate downfall. Because one time, in 1279, after an engagement with the Mongols, rumours began to spread that Ivalo had been killed in battle. Now, he hadn't, but that didn't matter. Back at the imperial capital of Tarnovo, the rumour was enough to have the Bulgarian nobility surrender to the Byzantines. They were so panicked about having lost their uh, their emperor. And so Michael did install his puppet emperor after all, named Ivan Arsen III. And Maria, the wife of Ivalo, was exiled. And when Ivalo re-emerged some time later, it was too late. Ivan held the capital as the new Bulgarian emperor and repelled Ivalo's attempts to reclaim it. And this led to Avalo making a calculated gamble in approaching, if you believe it, the Mongols for help, offering himself as their vassal if they would help him reclaim the Bulgarian throne. Now, a good idea, you would think, right? In order to get his ass back on the throne, you have to make a couple of sacrifices here. And saying that you'll become a vassal of the Mongols, well, that was one way for him to re- re-secure his, uh, his, uh, his empire. But here's the problem with his plan. It was the same plan that Ivan had. Ivan did exactly the same thing, right? And so approached the the leader of the Nogai horde, Nogai Khan, and made him exactly the same offer that Ivalo had. So Nogai Khan thought about it, weighed up the two candidates, and then in 1281 decided on Ivan. And so to keep things nice and simple, Nogai Khan just murdered Ivalo and that was the end of him. Now, we all know that the winners write the history books, of course, and the winners here were the Byzantines, as they had helped to bring about the end of this upstart farmer who had his delusions of grandeur. And so, when the Byzantines were writing these history books, as the winners love to do, they gave poor old Ivalo some very unflattering nicknames, mocking him for his humble beginnings. And I think it's monstrously unfair 
that this bloke is known as Avelo the Cabbage. He was a red-blooded Bulgarian hero, mate. He was a champion of the common folk, someone who took control of his own destiny and rose from a farmhouse to an imperial palace. Ivalo the brave, how about that? Ivalo the courageous, Ivalo the effortlessly charismatic, how about Ivalo the class warrior? Anything but Ivalo the cabbage, the poor bastard, honestly. We've actually already met um, our next bloke here, Salim II of the Ottoman Empire. We've met him relatively recently too, episode 257, Hurum Sultan, get across it. You might remember from that episode that Hurum Sultan, the remarkable wife of the Ottoman Sultan, Suleiman the Magnificent, um, the two of them had six kids together, right? Five sons and a daughter. And one of those sons grew up to inherit the throne from his father, Suleiman, and become Selim II, or as he is most often called, Selim the Drunk. Not the sort of epithet you'd be hoping for, especially when your old man is known as the Magnificent. But look, honestly, Selim only had himself to blame because I tell you what, there is there are no two ways about it. This bloke loved getting on the source. Selim was born in 1524, the third of Hiram Sultan's kids, as, uh, as I mentioned, um, ended up being one of five sons. And This was bound to cause some problems when it came to succession. You might remember from that episode how we talked about the cutthroat ruthlessness of Ottoman princes when it came to inheriting their dad's titles. Fratricide was all in a day's work for a prince, uh, Shazad. If you wanted to become Sultan, you had to be ready to do your brothers dirty and murder your way to the throne. However, in Salim's case, it's a little more interesting. Because he was never really expected to inherit. He wasn't all that interested in inheriting the throne. He wasn't interested in politics or leadership or anything, really. He was more interested in chilling out, having a good time, listening to music or poetry, and as you have probably guessed thanks to his epithet, sinking back just a few jars here and there. So how did he become Sultan? How did he end up inheriting ahead of four other brothers, some of whom presumably were more interested in actually becoming Sultan? Well, you might remember every single one of them was dead except for Salim when their old man Solomon died in 1566. Shezad Abdullah didn't make it past being a toddler. He died in 1528, probably of smallpox. Shezad Mehmet, Suleiman's eldest son with Hurum, also died of smallpox in 1543 when he was in his early 20s. Shehad Sihanga was born with chronic health issues and only made it to the age of 21 before succumbing to them in 1553, so he's out of the running. And finally, Shezad Bayezid was executed in 1561 on Suleiman's orders after starting a rebellion. And Suleiman also had his seven sons, his, his grandchildren, executed as well, just for good measure. Most of them little kids. The stuff you can do and still get away with being called the Magnificent, you never would have thought. Anyway, by the time we get to 1566, when uh, when Suleiman dies, uh, only Selim is left. He's kept his head down, he's hung out with his mates, he's knocked back the wines, he's chilled out. When Suleiman dies, there simply isn't anyone else to inherit. And so Selim becomes Sultan. And he does two-thirds of bugger all with his new authority as the ruler of the Ottoman Empire. What he did instead was leave the governance of his realm to his grand vizier, Mehmed Sokolu, and to his wife, Nubanu Sultan. 
And this was a period of Ottoman history referred to as the Sultanate of Women. Women like Hurum Sultan and Nubanu Sultan had unprecedented political power. And a lot of this in this particular chapter of that period of history was because Selim was just too busy getting pissed to do anything to do with actually governing his realm. So his wife and his grand vizier got on with the business of ruling the empire, cutting diplomatic deals with the Holy Roman Empire, fighting the Russians, and very famously losing the Battle of Lepanto, the last ever major naval battle to be fought with oar-driven vessels. Devastating loss for the Ottomans, changed the course of history as it checked our ambitions for further expansion across the Mediterranean. But Selim was, largely speaking, an arm's length from the lot of this, right? Much of his time and attention was, was taken up with wine, women and song. And if we're going to be really honest, mainly just wine. The only reason the Battle of Lepanto took place is because the Ottomans sought to conquer Cyprus. And apparently one of the main reasons they went after Cyprus in the first place was because Selim really had a thing for Cypriot wine. Now, I don't know how true that actually is. It came up in a couple of places when I was reading about this bloke, but I don't know if it's actually the case. I can tell you what is actually the case. However, this bloke loved getting on the lash to the point that his advisors and counsellors knew that keeping him drunk was the best way for them to get on with the business of ruling. But look, let's not be too hard on the bloke, right? He knew what he liked and he knew what he didn't like and he liked getting pissed and he didn't like ruling. And besides... When a famine hit the Ottoman Empire in 1573, he responded by opening the palace kitchens to the public to make sure people had food in their bellies, and that is real leadership as far as I'm concerned. Anyway, it was, you won't be surprised to find out, Selim's great love of booze that in the end caused his death. He went through most of his life half-cut, and one day in 1574, he's as drunk as ever, and he heads down to a bathhouse for a bit of a soak, and while he's there, wobbling across the wet floors, He slipped on the marble underfoot, cracked his head open, and died. And that was the end of the very aptly named Selim the Drunk. But at least he died doing what he loved, right? In this case, being too pissed to stand up. Now, being known as the drunk is one thing, and while it doesn't reflect super well on you, there you know there are ways you can spin it. Maybe you're a jolly drunk, maybe you're a bit of a party animal, always ready for a good time. But I don't know how you can spin our next epithet to sound a little more positive, because I'd like you to meet Robert Devereux, the third Earl of Essex, often referred to as Robert the Cuckold. Poor bastard. You're not coming back from that, are you? Even if you're into it, even if it's your kink, right? It's hardly how you'd want to be introduced to people. Kinks are obviously fine. Chase your bliss. Do what you need to do. But they don't make for great epithets. Robert the Toe Sucker, maybe. Robert of the Crushed Testicles. Doesn't, doesn't quite work. But anyway, this particular Robert, he did become known as Robert the Cuckold. And I'll tell you why. Although you've probably guessed. Robert Devereux was born to an illustrious English noble family in 1591. He was the son of a bloke also named Robert Devereux, who was one of Queen Elizabeth I's courtiers. Uh, And his wife was Frances Walsingham, who was herself the daughter of Frances Walsingham, Elizabeth's spymaster. So this bloke, between his mum and his dad, should have been set, you'd think, with his political connections. And he would have been. But then his dad raised his flag in rebellion against Elizabeth, late in her rule, and was executed for it. Not his best idea. His family was stripped of their titles, but luckily, King James VI and I, Elizabeth's successor, 
restored the earldom of Essex to, to young Robert, who became good friends with James's young son, Henry Stuart. And this proved to be a good move. Robert is back on track here. He's back in the king's good graces. In 1604, at the age of 13, he got married because, you know, European nobility. He got married to a 14-year-old named Francis Howard. Now, they didn't consummate the marriage because they were, you know, little more than children. And then in 1607, Robert went off on a grand tour of continental Europe, still no consummation. And while he's away, she starts knocking about with a different bloke, a different Robert, Robert Carr, Viscount Rochester, and everybody knows that this is going on. So Robert Devereux comes back, he finds out that his wife has been playing away, and he seeks an annulment of the marriage on the grounds of impotence. So first your missus is off away with another fella, and now you're coming out and saying you want to leave her because you can't perform. I'm certainly not one for being bound to traditional ideals of hardcore masculinity or anything like that, but Robert, mate, come on. You are not doing yourself any favours here. He is the laughingstock of the royal court. His wife is making a fool of him. He's making a fool of himself. In the annulment proceedings, he claimed that he could perform with other women, just not with his wife. Glad he brought that up, or he might have been known as Robert the Impotent instead. But quite sadly, I mean, you know, we're, we're kind of making light of the situation, but this is a, this is, this bit, it's quite sad. He also said that Francis just wasn't very nice to him. He said that she reviled him and miscalled him, terming him a cow and a coward and a beast. And that's no way to speak to anyone, regardless of how rubbish they are in bed. So I, I honestly think it's for the best that poor old Robert, Robert was granted the annulment in 1613 and both he and Francis were able to move on with their lives. Not that that was a given for Francis, however, thanks to the cruel twist of fate that came along three years later in 1616. Francis married her paramour in 1613, only a few months after the annulment had taken place. But in 1616... Francis and her husband were accused of and tried for the horrible murder of the poet Sir Thomas Overbury. And would you like to guess who was selected as a member of the jury for this trial? Robert the Cuckold, given an incredible chance for revenge against his former wife by being a juror at her murder trial. Now, Robert did not hold back. She is as guilty as sin, he says. Clearly, it's her what done it. James, your majesty, bloody off with her head. Let's go. Robert was actually successful in convincing the rest of the jury that she was guilty. And honestly, she probably was. And he persuaded the king to send Francis and her husband to the scaffold. Now, as I say, in fairness, it very probably was her what done it. She had very likely poisoned poor old Thomas Overbury to death. Francis always had some sort of plot or intrigue going on. However, look, guilty or no, the sentence was never carried out. She was pardoned after a stint in the Tower of London. She and her husband uh, got the, pardon, the, the royal pardon from King James and they were released. So Robert's revenge was not fully complete. But hey, it's not everyone who gets to send their unfaithful ex-spouse to the Tower of London as a juror at their murder trial. So at least he probably enjoyed that. But unfortunately, he didn't have much luck in his second marriage either to Elizabeth Paulet. Uh, this resulted in her becoming pregnant. But 
Probably to another man, once again. Cuckled by name, cuckled by nature. Poor old Robert just can't catch a break. Um, his second marriage, total disaster, just like the first, they ended up separating. And instead, Robert the Cuckold put his energy elsewhere, namely into military affairs. He went on to have a, quite a high-profile military career in the English Civil War. He fought, uh, fought James's son Charles I, episode 221, get across it, as a prominent roundhead and, in fact, was the very first Captain General and Chief Commander of the Parliamentarian Army. But eventually he was eclipsed by the rise of Oliver Cromwell and the new model army instead. Robert the Cuckold died in 1646 at the age of just 55 after having a stroke. And the first thing his second wife did after he died was get married to someone else. He really didn't have much luck in love, did he? But what do you expect from someone named Robert the Cuckold? But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. Those are five of the weirdest epithets from history. If you know some others that I missed this week, please let me know what they are. It was hard to track these ones down. I'm sure there are others uh, hiding away, waiting for me to discover them. So please do get in touch. Head over to the website, halfhousehistory.net, and uh, submit the contact or use the contact form to submit any suggestions you have. Uh, on anything at all, it's great to hear from people. Um, all the boring housekeeping stuff. I'm going to actually whiz through it today because I want to talk about something else. Um, halfhousehistory.net. Patreon.com slash Half House History. Thank you so much to all the exalted patrons. If you want to sign up, ad-free listing available to you there via a patron, as well as a bunch of other exclusive uh, member-only uh, perks, uncut episodes, behind-the-scenes stuff, blah, 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 whatever. You, you know, you hear it every week. Um, totally forgot to mention this over the last couple of weeks. Oh, sorry. Tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell people about whom you felt largely. You know, you know the drill. Check this out. It has been five years and two weeks since I started this podcast. And I just kind of missed it. A couple of weeks ago, it was the fifth anniversary of Half-Assed History. And uh, yeah, just kind of forgot. So oops. Anyway, happy birthday to Half-Assed History, I guess. And thank you to everyone who is still listening. If you've been here for the full five years, my goodness me. Thank you so very much for being part of the Half-Assed History community for, for, for so long. And if you're a newer listener, well, look, you're just as welcome um, it's good to have everyone along listening, and, and thank you so much to everyone for for the support over over the half decade that this show has been going on for. I never really expected, I didn't have any expectations really as to how long it would go or what this show would even look like. It started off as just kind of a as a hobby, right, to keep my eye in with with reading about history and staying engaged in history and expanding my own sort of personal knowledge. And now it has, you know, a medium sized following, quite a you know, in the grand scheme of things with most podcasts, quite a large following. And I'm enormously appreciative of, of how many thousands of people tune in to listen to this show every week. And it was just a, po- a point at which I sort of realized that after five years, we're still going strong and still churning out episodes and, and still getting across all sorts of, stilly, of silly stuff from throughout, you know, the, the grand sweep of, of human history. So, all I really wanted to say was just thank you. Thank you so very, very much for listening to this dumb podcast week in and week out, year in and year out. And I don't know, maybe in five years from now, I'll be forgetting the 10th anniversary of the show. I really do want to try to do something for episode 300. Every time a big milestone comes up, this is going to be, I'm going to do something really special and cool. And then it just kind of doesn't happen. So I don't know. Stay tuned, I guess. We'll see what happens in 35 weeks and maybe I'll have something special lined up. But mm, seeing as I 
actually just forgot the five-year anniversary of, of, of the show. I, I, mm, I, I guess the safe money is probably on episode 300 being pretty normal. Anyway, thank you. Very, very sincerely, thank you so much for listening to this silly podcast. And long may it continue. Again, maybe we will get another five years out of this show. I never knew how long I was going to do it for, and I still don't know. But with the way things are going, I don't have any plans stopping anytime soon. So thanks for being on board. Thanks for listening to this dumb podcast. And uh, I didn't have a dismount. So, yeah, forgot forgot to figure out how I was going to end this little bit as well. Well, we'll just end the show the same way that we do every week, of course, with a question posed on Reddit. This one comes to us from Redditor Stariol. And uh, as we talked about Ivalo the Cabbage, one of uh, Bulgaria's greatest heroes, I thought we'd include a question on Bulgaria. So Stariol, uh, Stariol asks... Are the people from Bulgaria known for their Bulgarity? If not, why are they called Bulgars? <laughs>